Now let's turn to the text, and as you could see, I am presenting to you Genesis chapter 1. Uh, many reasons for that. Where we left off, Philippians chapter 3, is very intense, and really it does not fit with January atmosphere. This is new beginning, new year, so I wanted to talk about uh, something new like that. And I hope many of you have started the Bible reading. I am not going to talk about that, but I hope this will encourage you to, to do so. And for this year, for me, I've decided to read the Bible, God's Word, with the legacy, that version that we gave you last year. Already I am seeing the benefit of it, at least in the Old Testament. And how you see the name of Yahweh, I mean, you will gain a lot out of it. It is not simply God, but it is Yahweh they translate and, and you will see a lot more truths by reading that. So I encourage you to do that. Next few weeks, I want to bring you from the early chapters of some of my readings to encourage you with the beginning chapters of the few books, Old Testament and New Testament, and Psalm and Proverbs. That's how a once-a-year reading plan works for me. So you know where to find those plans and get into it. And if you have missed already, I don't know how many days, forget about those days. Begin with today. Like I said, if you miss a few days, do not try to go back and catch up those days. You will never finish. But I encourage you to read God's Word on your own. But why don't we begin and read the entire chapter of Genesis 1. I don't know if you have read Genesis 1 recently. But something about Genesis 1, it tells us the whole story of the Bible. It does not begin with Jesus Christ. It does not begin with the cross. It does not begin with the empty tomb. It does not begin with Roman jail or Philippian jail that we've been thinking about. So it is good for us to be reminded of who this God is. When we come to Genesis 1, there is that pressure upon us. And as we read it, we are constantly asking questions. Is this true? How is this so? How can we defend this over against some of the other theories and things like that? So we are constantly reading Genesis 1, being distracted by all these things that we worry about. But what I want you to do today with me is to forget about all of that. But to read this as it is true account of how it happened, what happened in the beginning. Fully trusting that this is God's word, infallible, inerrant, accurate and true historical description of the beginning. Forget about everything else. But let us pay attention to what God is revealing to us. So I'm going to make 
obviously there's just a lot going on here, but I'm just going to move down the list and I'm going to give you some of the things that I've meditated this week. Verse 1 is short. Look at it. This is how it begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What do you see from that verse? Many people are drawn into the phrase, in the beginning. What do you mean by in the beginning? Also, people are drawn to the second half of that verse. Creation. Created the heavens and the earth. But the most important subject or subject matter in Genesis 1.1 or even in Genesis 1 or in the entire Bible or even in the entire world or universe, the most important subject that you encounter is the word here called God. We miss that. Why? Like I said, we immediately think about creation, dinosaurs, or, or some other evolution. How are we going to uh, talk about this? How are we going to defend this? But in Genesis 1, verse 1, the most important subject that you must notice is God. That's the most important thing that you should see. Genesis 1-1 declares that there is God. Not a God among other gods, not power, but God. So the reality, the creation, the world, history, it begins with this God. And in verse 1, we already could figure out this God is God who stands outside of creation, time, and space, who alone is uncreated, self-existing, self-contained. That word self-contained is that God does not exist in correlation to the universe. He is self-existing and self-contained and unrelated to the universe that he created. He is boundless and limitless in his being and existence, and he is all-sufficient unto himself. That's what we discover in verse 1. In the beginning, it's not really about the beginning. And I would argue it really is not about the creation either. In verse 1, God is revealing himself. So you must come to understand the most important subject that you could ever know in your lifetime is that there is this God who is uncreated, self-existing, separated from everything else, this God. So according to one theologian, he says, God is 
concrete self-existence. It does not even begin with the triunity of God. It begins with God. The word is Elohim is a plural form, but we never translate that as God's. That's not the Old Testament view of God. But God does not begin by revealing himself, Father, Son, and the Spirit, as we will come to know God as triunity in the development of the redemptive history. But God begins with God himself, declaring that he is. He is self-existing, concrete self-existence. And according to our own definition of our confession, chapter 2, this God is this, there is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute. Paragraph 2. And is alone in and unto himself all sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which he has made. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. That description of God in the second chapter of Westminster Confession really will make sense as you meditate upon Genesis chapter 1. This is God that we are talking about. He is infinite in his being and perfection. So there is that creator God. And other than this being, everything else is created by him. Whatever is out there. There is God and everything else. And with that, in verse 1, with that view, in the beginning, God, really, it's about God. With that view, look at the world and look at yourself. Look at the world. Then you will see through the lens of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, all of these things that we see and we know, they are created by this God. What can you do with that knowledge? In 1 Timothy, Apostle Paul talks about God in this fashion, who alone possesses immortality, dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. And he says, To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. There's nothing else for you to do but to praise this God. So, we could talk about many issues. But as you look at Genesis 1, as you ponder upon this God, we become more heavenly minded. We take our eyes off of the world and issues of the world and even of ourselves. But you look at God, think about this God, glory of God, Glory of Christ, glory of this immutable heavenly glory. And as you spend time doing that, 
you and I, we become more heavenly minded. And that's what we need, really. We cannot get caught up with these issues. We, last week, we talked about Christ sitting down. He's in control. He's in session. And he will be back. Today, in the beginning of this year, I want you to know that there is this God if I could add onto Westminster Confession many definitions of this God, I will add indescribable. How can we describe this God? That's the first. Second point is this. Look at verse 2 with me. And the earth. The narrow scope of Genesis chapter 1 the focus is not on another galaxy far away from here. But it zooms in to the earth. And it talks about that initial beginning primordial state of that earth. And there are few words that describe that earth. What is it? What are they? The earth was formless and void. Hebrew word is tohu and bohu. There's a rhythm. Earth was formless and void, and notice the next one. And darkness was over the surface of deep, deep watery space. Have you noticed that there is darkness in the initial stage. That's why next verse, God creates what? Let there be light. So it was dark. It was formless and void and darkness. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. We could say a lot about that Spirit of God, but... I will just take it as Spirit of God, and that's what it is. In that state, already God is working. Now, one of the cardinal truths of Genesis 1 or Christian theology, yeah, I don't know if you have heard about this term, if you pick up any book on Genesis, you will hear about ex nihilo, creatio ex nihilo. You will find it all the time, ex nihilo, ex nihilo, out of nothing. God created something out of nothing. It, it, is, it is the truth. It is Christian theology, yes. Creation out of nothing. So we are not denying that. That creation out of nothing is really everywhere presupposed and implied in Genesis 1. But I want you to notice something. Verse 2, in the beginning, that verse 1 was the summary statement. This is how things began. But in verse 2, that creation out of nothing really is implied truth here. So God does not say, it does not begin in verse 2. God said, let me create the matters first. Like earth, air, fire, water, or something. And out of these matters, now I'm going to create something, create the universe. Even the focus of verse 2 is not so much 
about that God created something out of nothing. That really is not the focus, as you could see. That is simply implied. It is there. But the focus of verse 2, an entire chapter 1, is God is bringing order to chaos through his creation by himself, alone. There's no other persons or gods or beings. So verse 2, Tohu and Bohu and darkness. And the Spirit of God is already hovering over the uh, surface of water. So the focus of verse 2 and the rest of chapter 1 is not so much that God created something out of nothing. That obviously is true. Let us not. We cannot deny that. But God's focus is that God is bringing order to Tohu and Bohu. That formless and void state and dark state, God is going to bring order into chaos. But chaos here does not mean out of result of something sinister or evil. It simply means that formless and void is the state unorganized. God hasn't really started his work of creation. So that's the focus. John Walton says this, Genesis is interested in an organized world as against a chaotic world. Not in the metaphysical question of something against nothing. If the text were going to talk about manufacture of matter, it would begin when no matter existed. But since, as we have seen it, it intends to talk about bringing the cosmos into existence by organizing and assigning roles and functions, that is, by bringing order to chaos, it will start with cosmos in a chaotic uh, state. This is God's self-revelation to the ancient Israelites, correct? So you have to find them, Israelites, in their own context. And their context was one. They were surrounded by pagan nations who had multiple gods. And there are only few creation stories in that setting. Sumerian myth, myth of Anzu. Babylonian, Iluma Elish. And the last one, Ugaritic Baal epic. You could look it up. It's basically poem, ancient poem. That's how the surrounding nations talked about creation. It's not that long. You could look them up. And if you look them up, you will always find that there are multiple gods fighting all the time. Creation is usually the result of these gods fighting, killing each other. As opposed to that Babylonian story, Egyptian story, Sumerian story, Akkadian story. God is telling them how it began. And there is only one God. And God is bringing order into this chaos by speaking things into being. And there is no martyr, war, battle. So that's the second point. First point is that there is that God. Second point is that the earth was formless and void. That's the focus, nothing else. 
And the point is not that God, there was nothing vacuum and let me create something first out of nothing. That really is not the point. The focus is the earth. Formless, void, tohu, bohu, darkness, and this God who stays alone, he will put order into chaos. And Israelites will look around and all the surrounding nations and their myth, and they, they will say, this is our God, this is true God, this is how it happened. Now, creation. Creation, we, we already read through the whole thing, but there is that repetition. I am sure you have noticed it. Then God said, and it was so. God makes something. God says something. And what's the next one? God saw that it was good. And the third element is God calls them something. So that repeats itself. God says, God saw, and God calls. That repeats almost every day, probably not in the exact fashion, but you will see that happening. And this week I've been just thinking about Verse 3. Look, could you, would you look at verse 3? Then God said, right? God creates in this fashion. God speaks, but what does God say? How does God say? God says, let there be light. And there was light. I looked it up. Why let there be? What kind of translation is that? When I looked it up, that whole verb is an imperative, but not imperative. What's, what's imperative? You tell someone to do something. Make something. That's imperative. So in order for you to command something, usually it assumes second person. You are addressing somebody to do something. But here it is, the third person. And technical term they use is jussive. So it is usually in the third person jussive will be translated as let there be. I mean, I thought of a couple of things out of that. First, God is so powerful in his creation. He could address something in the third person. And there was light. God does not even have to say in the second person, but he simply says, let there be. Let there be. He does not waste. He's not screaming. He's not shooting laser from his eyes or fingers or like that. But he simply says, let there be. That's power. Power of God conveyed. Another thing is this. It had to be expressed in this way because he really, think about it, he really cannot say it's darkness, so he really cannot say, light, you appear. You cannot, he, God cannot really say that because by addressing light, there was no light. So how can he call upon something that does not exist yet? So he simply says, let there be light. And there was light. 
the wisdom of God, even in assuming, speaking in this fashion. And chapter 1, really, it does not go out of fashion. It will always be true because God expressed it. God told us in this, in this way. Now, God says, there it was. God sees it. God has time to reflect upon his own creation, tells us. God is a source of beauty. God is like an artist. He creates and he enjoys his creation. It was good. And God calls something, gives them the name. God said, we already talked about it in the Let There Be. But when God saw that it was good, that word is really a Hebrew word, tob. So you will see in the Jewish synagogues, a lot of the names that they will bear tob. A synagogue of tob. That's good. Pleasing, desirable, suitable, usable, in order, lovely, friendly, kind, good, in character and value, morally good. So the point also of the entire Genesis 1 is that his entire creation was good, morally, lovely, beautiful, and Last verse, chapter 1, verse 31 said, it was very good. That's how it ends. It was good, good, good. But summary statement was it was exceedingly good, very good. So God's creation, the world was perfect creation, but also it was a good creation. The world was not always as it is now. The chaos of sin, the struggle to survive were not part of the picture. God's initial design and work of creation was all good and nothing but good, pristine good, pleasing to his sight. And once you understand how good it was, you will also understand how sin destroys everything in this perfect creation. Last thing before I make some observations and applications would be this. There's a progression in the story toward two goals. First is, as far as creation is concerned, the pinnacle of creation is man. Everything else that is preceding was actually to set up a stage, a perfect abode for man to dwell. So it was all the preparation for man to come to the scene or the stage. And I will not talk about image of God and all that is entailed in that verse, not today. But it is moving toward the creation of man. But as far as the days are concerned, in two, chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, it is progressing toward the seventh day. Why? Because he rested. 
God does not have to wait. I mean, did he work hard to create? I don't think so. He was not working hard. He simply spoke. God is all spirit, all powerful, so he does not need rest, but he rested. But also he does something unique for that day. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. What? The seventh day. There's something about seventh day. So when you think about it, we step back and think about Genesis 1. What is Genesis 1 about? It's about God. It began with God. It ends with God resting. And later on in Exodus 20, what do we find? Sabbath. God hallowed it. God sanctified it. Consecrated it. Why? For the ultimate purpose of receiving worship from his people. That's how Genesis 1 to 2, 3. That's, that's the story about Genesis 1. It's not really about creation. It is about that, obviously. But that's not the focus. It really is not about man either. It is the pinnacle of his creation. But really, it begins with God, and it ends with God. That is the biblical worldview. God is the Alpha, and He will be the Omega. He is the beginning, and He will be the end. There's nothing else and no one else. That's the purpose for which God created the creation and you. Let me just give you a few applications out of that. Genesis 1 gives us a worldview. It's not simply an information, but it is a worldview, correct and true worldview, by giving us the knowledge of God, that there is God, and this God created everything else. That's right. That's the worldview that you are going to live with. That's the correct worldview. And whatever does not fit with their worldview will be false. You don't have to go chase after all these false worldviews, endless, limitless in quantity. Wherever the worldview, cultural issues, cultural wars, and all that, whatever does not fit with Genesis 1 through 3 is not true. So that's where we begin. And I don't think this is the case, but I have written down in case if you do not know who you are, you cannot find out about yourself without knowing who God is. Now, second thing is this. God was bringing order to chaos. Um, the world is in its own mass because it is void of God. Only God could bring order to chaos. That's what we believe. If your life is in mess, I don't think so, not you, but family feuds, all kinds of headaches, heartaches. Why? Why is that? Why do people suffer? Because there is no reference point. There's no God in their life, in their lives. 
And for you to have order, you need God, God's presence, God's truth, and God's word. But God's word in a raw form, like reading God's word alone, may not bring that order to chaos. In reflection of God's word, you need the wisdom of God. In Genesis 1, we could see wisdom of God. God does not throw everything into chaos and ask them to figure it out. God does not create fish without first creating the water. God does everything in order. That tells us God has a plan. One by one, step by step, God is patient. God does not mix it up. God does not bring chaos. So in reflection of God's word and truth, you also become wise in your understanding of yourself, of the world around you, and of other people. It takes time and prayer and reflection. So with all that God gives you, there will be an order in your life. Third thing is God created by saying and God saw and God called. Obviously, we cannot speak things into being, but we all know the power of words. We are image bearers of God, and what we speak matters. And as his image bearers, we could also speak the words to people around us with an intention to build them up in godliness. So, in 2023, as we are informed by God's word and we exercise our faith upon it, we will speak the words of faith. We talked about this, I talked about this. Ten spies, they had facts, but they were wrong because they lacked faith to interpret the facts. So if you only see the facts, the evidences of the world, you will end up being cynical, always scared, negative. But for us, we should reflect God's wisdom and power in that that shaping, especially people around us, in positive way, positive words, not negative words, but also faith-filled words. Why don't you go home and speak 10 good words, faith-based words to your spouse and to your children. It's very important that you speak the words of God to your children in a positive way, and they remember that. And the Word of God is powerful, so they will conform their ideas, thoughts, and patterns of their lives to that Word. So let us do that. Let us not simply say factual things, but faith-filled words for you, for your family, and for this church. 
or skip the soul, seeing things. But I would say the last words on calling it. God called this, that, this, that. You saw that. God simply, God did not simply create and let it be. God appreciates his creation, and but also God calls them something. And in chapter 2, you will see Adam will do the same as, as vice regent of God. So calling tells us it's about ownership, authority, but also, listen to this, by calling something light or something else, God is giving meaning to that creature's existence. Each creation has God-given purpose and God-assigned place. For example, son's purpose in Genesis 1 was let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and Verse 15, to give light on the earth. When God created the sun, God had a purpose for that sun. And the purpose for that sun was to give light upon the earth. So when God calls it sun, God is communicating his authority, ownership, but also telling them their purpose. But also, God has given them a place. God put that sun, placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, verse 17. So, in order for us to find out our purpose, your life's purpose, but also, in order for you to fulfill it, you need to know God's word, right? God gives meaning, purpose. But it is very also important that you remain in your place. Sun cannot depart from its assigned place and location. As soon as sun leaves that assigned place, this whole thing will fall apart. Satan is the angel who left his own place. So for us to fulfill our purposes or destinies, you and I, we must remain in our own places or stations that God has assigned for you. Right? If you are a father, father cannot leave the family. Fatherless family problems. If you are a student, you cannot leave that station. Pastor cannot leave that place of preaching and teaching. Church member cannot leave his or her own place. You see, God has given purpose, but also a place for you to fill. And as you know and remain in that place, you will fulfill God-given purpose. Apostle Paul speaks to his younger minister, Timothy, in this way. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, 
Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. He will only be able to fulfill his ministry as he remains in that place and as he endures hardship, no matter what. If he's enticed, he leaves that place. Or if he's crushed by the weight of that ministry, if he leaves, he will not be able to fulfill God-given ministry. I think it's the same thing for all of you, all of us. Remain in your place so that God could work in and through you to fulfill his purpose in and through you all for his glory. Let us keep this in mind, keep these in mind, in our minds as we live our lives this year. May God bless you. God loves to bless, as you have seen. God loves to bless so that with that blessing, we give glory to our God. Let's pray.